The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, The Lonely Now, and Will Harris. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. June 12th, 2020 is the date. We are going to talk about the historic significance of the Veep stakes today. We are going to talk about the latest in a long line of books that will change everything about the Trump administration. But we begin with a personal note, and that is that I'm going back on the road. Now, many of you are probably aware, I think I mentioned it on the last, uh, on the Wednesday episode, but Donald Trump is going to be doing rallies, and the first rally is going to happen next Friday in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so, for the first time since South Carolina, I'm going to be out there on the road covering it. Not sure whether or not I will have a credential for the event itself. I hope to. I hope to do it. But otherwise, I will be speaking with and and creating the content on the ground like we did when, uh, when things were humming at the beginning of the year. Now, I'm going to be self-indulgent for a second and talk a little bit about this process. Because on one hand, based only by interactions with people in social media and on Twitch, I know that there is a portion of the audience that is worried about this or doesn't think this is a good idea. And so I want to address that. I I just want to let everybody know that the reason why I want to go out there and do this is because I believe that the reason you guys are listening to me right now or have enjoyed this show, both in terms of the numbers of downloads, of the uh, how you guys are sharing it, part of what really gave us a great flair through the beginning of this campaign, was an unaffiliated, independent, traveling set of eyes and ears out on the trail. Not beholden to an assignment desk, not beholden to an editor. All I have to do is create content that I believe, based on our relationship, you guys will enjoy. While I have not been shy about uh, venting my frustration that a a moment that I had uh, really only read about being out there on the trail and covering this was cut short by way of a pandemic. This isn't about me just being stir crazy. This is about me wanting to make sure that this content gets made for you because Quite honestly, 
I don't think anybody else is doing things like I do it. So if I don't do it, then it doesn't get done. So there's that. Uh, and, and trust me, I am going to be very safe. I'm trying to think of if I want to get a mask with, with something on it that would like kind of diffuse a situation if, you know, there's, there's mask hostile people around. But then again, like, you know, if I am there in the event, then I'll be in the press pen and people will be like, you know, booing and jeering anyway. If there is a personal reason why I think it's important that I go out, at least for me, my own psyche, is that I, I think that we're going to be living with COVID for a little bit. I think we're going to have to understand that this is a part of our world. You know, we're starting to see uh, some rises in the numbers, the COVID numbers, specifically in the South. Uh, the West, Northeast, which was hit the hardest, has uh, uh, recovered uh, very well. But we are, two things, I'm going to agree with Nate Silver on this, he put this up on Twitter, two things that I think are misnomers are second wave and spike. Because this is not really a second wave, we're still dealing with the first wave. If anything, probably the more accurate nomenclature would be that we are plateauing instead of falling. And we're not really seeing a spike. We're, we're seeing a gradual rise. And if we're seeing a gradual rise, well, that's fine if it rises and then falls. It's not fine if it rises and then rises and then rises and then rises. We're... I think we need to get to is a point where we're more accurately speaking about this kind of stuff. Because to be quite honest, I don't think that we have had tremendous leadership on this, nor do I think that if we were to do it all over again in a year, that we would lock anything down. In fact, uh, uh, there was a political article interviewing a bunch of governors saying like, yeah, we're not locking anything down. Even if we have a second way, even if we have a rise in cases, we're not locking down like we locked down at the beginning at the beginning of the year. And to be honest, I, I don't know if you can look at the lockdown and say that we would do it the exact same way again. Because I don't think on the other side of this, we have seen a sustainable model for how to live with a virus for which the vaccine at the blazing fastest will be here in November or December. And at that point, we have the totally super easy task of distributing it to the populace, which I'm sure won't come with any pitfalls or political provisos. Friends, we're at a point now that is very frustrating to me because we spent so much time talking about the when and the what. When are we locking down? When are we coming out of lockdown? What are we locking down? What are we opening back up? That we haven't really spent a whole lot of time on the how, which to me 
is the only relevant question we should be asking. How are we opening back up? How are we going to then close it down a little bit more if we do need to change things? I don't think that we have competent messaging between our health officials, our governments, and our citizens in terms of saying where we are right now and what we need to do. And largely it's because, and this is why I think we would do it differently, the lockdown made it so mentioning a rise in cases meant everything changes and you need to be in your house and all the businesses need to be closed. I don't think that that's realistic. I don't think it's smart. And I don't think that we're necessarily better for it in terms of living with what this is. And that's before we get to the fact that we've politicized this entire situation, which, you know, look, I I, I try to do my best to make fun of the fact that uh, we live in these dual realities and, and I try to explain the world in terms of political realities of, of who's going to win a campaign or lose a campaign, understanding that this stuff is in here. You listeners to this show know that I don't do a lot of culture war stuff. I'm not the guy out here uh, talking about HBO Max taking off Gone with the Wind. Uh, you know, when I do wade into hot button issues that are outside of my particular purview like we did with the police brutality episode, what I'm trying to focus on is not only political solutions for it, nonpartisan political solutions for it, but tying in Val Deming so at least we have some touchback to the campaign. But the split on this is such that we not only ignore the how, which is inherently nonpartisan, the how can involve everybody. The how can involve the people that really don't want to leave their house and the people that really need to open their business or else they're going to lose it. The how can adjust for everybody. But we blow by that because there's no no political uh, capital to be gained. No, we've decided to skip right to the why. The why of a thing that as of right now has yet to fully happen. Why will we be back into this COVID situation? Will it be because somebody very, very, very badly wanted to go to a blimpy subs and eat inside the restaurant? Or will it be because there was protest out in the streets? I find this to be intensely stupid. And if you are indeed doing it right now and you are listening to me, then I call to you as a friend, please stop. Please. You don't need to fight this battle right now. And I would implore you to not fight it at all. Because the answer is probably both. And more than that, I'm fine with both. But we need to understand what we are doing. We need to stop pretending that we can legislate our way out of human nature. We need to live with this. And if we need to live with this, then we need to figure out how we can go about our lives or the closest, safest facsimile with this. And so, I'll be off to Tulsa because what I do is make this show for you.
Hamilton is back. Well, he is, uh, <laughs> he's certainly going to be in the news a lot because his book, The Room Where It Happened, will be released on June 23rd. This after months of delays from the White House, which said that it contained, the book did, classified material. In the book, according to leaks, not leaks, I guess it was a press release, John Bolton will allege that Donald Trump committed Ukraine-like offenses during his presidency that John Bolton witnessed himself. Brief history on John Bolton. John Bolton is uh, a former UN ambassador for the United States. He then became, like so many of the Donald Trump uh, team, a star on Fox News, a fiery American war hawk who believed that there was nothing that the uh, uh, great fist of American might could not solve. When you hear people say that uh, America is horny for a war with Iran, it would be the mustachioid face of John Bolton that you would imagine grinning with carnal delight. But he's had a very interesting back and forth with Trump. My personal interaction, I've had one personal interaction with John Bolton. I've told the story before. I'll tell it again. Republican National Convention in 2016, I'm on the floor in my Charmander suit doing a you know viral video for the Daily Dot. So I'm dressed up like a Pokemon. I'm interviewing people. I'm asking them four Pokemon questions, and then I slip in like one really, really, really policy-specific question that was relevant at the time about whether or not uh, the United States would come to the aid of a NATO ally should they have invoked Article 5. It's a funny video. If you've never seen it, please go ahead and check it out. Charmander, Republican National Convention, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, while shooting that, I see a little scrum. So, being the curious little Charmander I am, I uh, trudge my way on over there, and I see that there's a little toady that's going around everybody uh, uh, with a camera or with a, a pad of paper because they're looking for reporters. Reporter, reporter, reporter. My, that's me. I'm a reporter. As well, uh, 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 would you like to speak to John Bolton? He's going to talk about how much he disagrees with Donald Trump on Article 5. Specifically, he wanted, he was looking for outlets to talk to about the specific question that I had been asking all of these other delegates. So I go, yeah, man, I will talk to I will talk to John Bolton very seriously. I will ask him no Pokemon questions. I will actually just sit there as long as I can do it in the outfit. I will have a dead, dead serious conversation about NATO and Article 5 and foreign wars and when and where it is appropriate for us to rally to our allies' aid, all of it. Uh, it will be dry as unbuttered toast, baby. Just give me Bolton. And, and the toady is looking at me and he's like, 
it seems like a bad idea. It seems like, and I'm like, and then I just keep talking to him about how much I know about NATO and how much, uh, you know, Article Five had only been uh, exercised once, and it was by us. We we exercised it after 9/11, and so theoretically, it's something that we absolutely would want to come back and and reciprocate the favor. God forbid there be something that was. Uh, uh, you know, so horrible amongst our NATO allies, not to mention the fact that there is the idea of a rising Russian problem. There's an idea of a rising Chinese problem. We're moving into a world where a united NATO is very important. And that was enough to get the toady over the hill. Because the toady then goes to Bolton. Now, Bolton is already talking to a few people. He waits by where uh, Bolton is uh, talking to a guy, and then Bolton gets done. Bolton's kind of short, although he's as flustery as you might imagine by looking at him on television. And he brings Bolton over. <laughs> and he's he's like explaining to him, yeah, yeah, you know, he's doing another video, but he, he does want to. He knows stuff about Article 5. And Bolton literally is looking at his toady as he's walking toward me. He takes one look at me. It just goes, No! And walks away. <laughs> so that's my one John Bolton story. Uh, as far as this book goes, there's a reason why I led with the story. Because I don't think that there's anything that's going to be in it. It's going to be like every other book. Let me get this. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, hold on. Uh, stop me if you heard it. Capricious. Not prepared for the job. Uh, swings wildly based on his moods. And the advice of people that he talks to late into the night. He is capricious. He pays too much attention to the media and he does not have the strong leadership for which many career government civil service people believe that the president should have. All right, so let's tack on a little bit of the new sheen and that'll be that he took this capriciousness to interacting with foreign leaders. Cool. A reminder that John Bolton didn't testify during the impeachment hearing. And uh, look, he wants to live in a world. John Bolton wants to live in a world where he can be a leader in the Republican Party. That's why he. you can't do that if you kick out a Republican president, no matter how unpopular that president might be in your head. So the fact of the matter is 96% of all Americans or all Republicans love Donald Trump. Love him. Man can't do no wrong in their eyes. Those are voters that John Bolton would like to have if he runs for president, which is rumored that he might want to do in 2024. This will be him saying Donald Trump, amateur wouldn't it be nice if we had Republican values that actually knew what they were doing in the White House? That's my opinion on John Bolton's book. We can work it out. How can we be lovers if we can be friends? How can we start on the web of fighting never ends, baby? How can we make love if we can't make a mess? All right. So I had somebody, uh, Michael, Michael Keeper, emailed me and he said, Justin, 
you're not letting people know how many ways that people can can view your content. If you like this podcast, then you're likely going to also enjoy the live streams that I do. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. 10 a.m. in the morning to noon Pacific time. That, of course, is 1 to 3 on the East Coast. Talking about whatever you guys want to talk about. We usually go on a little bit more uh, uh, ranty stuff. We do. If you miss the pole dance, I will tell you that the pole dance happens regularly on the live stream because I'm visual and it's a visual bit. and We have lights and it's a fun thing. So go ahead and check it out. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. If you ain't never heard of Twitch, although many people have now that through the pandemic, uh, uh, it's become the pinnacle of live entertainment. But just do yourself a favor, download it off the App Store, go to my channel, Justin R. Young, and follow. You'll get an alert when I go live, and there's like an audio-only mode. Basically, think of it as a a four-day-a-week, two-hour live radio show, commercial-free live radio show, where I'm talking about the news of the day, and you can interact with it. Go ahead and check it out. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. And one follow-up from last week. The man for whom I read the angry email voice, email, has now become a patron. Those are the bridges we are building on this here program. You can follow his lead. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We're past 930. Past 930. Barreling toward 1,000. Well, we'll be... I don't know. We'll be able to do it. We'll be able to do it sooner rather than later. Before July 4th? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. $1 just to chip in. $3 gets you bonus content on uh, Monday and Thursday. And by the way, the Thursday episode this time included an interview with my mom who had a rant about mail-in voting. And then, of course, the donor class, the Titanic $10 tier. It's all there. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today will explain how much we should or should not care about the Veep stakes. Yeah, who Biden selects as his vice president. Does it matter when we look at the history of all of these particular cases. Here to talk about it all is Kyle C. Kopko. He is the Associate Professor of Political Science and Associate Dean at Elizabethtown College in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. You can find him on Twitter at Kyle Kopko, K's on both Kyle and Kopko, and Christopher J. Devine. He is an Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. You can find him at Prof. Devine. They are the co-authors of the newly released book, do running mates matter? The influence of vice presidential candidates in presidential elections. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. 
Uh, all right, so uh, let's make sure that we get your your voices separated so people can uh, can can know who is who. Uh, uh, Kyle, if you could just uh, say hello. Hello, everyone. And Christopher. Hey, good to be with you today. Okay, so uh, uh, obviously a lot of conversation going on, uh, not only now, but certainly will throughout the summer, on who Joe Biden will pick as a vice president, which of course brings all of the the experts out on on uh, why certain vice president uh, a presidential pick will be better i would assume that most of this comes from the vice presidential candidates camps themselves as to uh, uh, tout their skills but in general since you guys have written the book on it how valuable is a vice president on a presidential ticket so this, Kyle, I'll start with that one. Uh, they, they can be important, but oftentimes what we see in the news media is, is really overblown. Like, are they going to deliver a key home state? Are they going to deliver an important block of voters? And our research doesn't really bear that out. It's, it's very, very rare that something like that happens. But in short, what our research does show is that whoever a presidential candidate selects as a running mate also helps to frame that presidential candidate to the voters, to the public. It says something about the presidential candidate, who they are, what they stand for, what their priorities are, so on and so forth. So if someone selects a running mate who maybe isn't qualified uh, to be vice president or potentially serve as president if need be, uh, voters are going to pick up on that. That's that's not going to bode well for the campaign. Uh, but I, I think the most important thing to remember is in terms of electoral effects, our, our research really shows that it's this indirect way of influencing the vote. It really shapes what people think about the presidential candidate first and foremost. And then obviously there are tremendous governing implications as well because the office of vice president has grown in significance so much in recent decades. And they really are someone that bridges the divide between the White House and Congress and brings policy plans to fruition on behalf of the president. So would you say that it's almost like a a, a test drive or a, a first example of a consequential policy decision or a decision that you would make as president probably more than it is a a campaign winning kind of gambit? I, I think that's a good way of describing it. In fact, I think of uh, Michael Dukakis is one who in 1988 uh, described the vice presidential selection as his first presidential act. And a lot of subsequent presidential candidates, including ones who are actually elected president, described it in the same way. Um, it's really being, um, you know, not necessarily the most consequential <laughs> the decision that they're, they're going to make in terms of, of the presidency. But uh, it, it's a, a concrete choice that they're making uh, early in, in, this, in this process, at least the general election process, uh, that really commits them uh, to what uh, commits the presidential candidate to what his or her administration is actually going to look like. Uh, several presidential candidates, I think of George W. Bush, Barack Obama, for instance, uh, have used words like this is a, a, a window into their presidency. It's a signal. It's a message. Um, <clears throat> To, to say that if, if this is the, the way they're going to make uh, the first decision, here's a preview of the kind of uh, presidential decision-making that you can expect. And this goes to some of the points that, that Kyle was raising about what we call the, the indirect effects or how this selection shapes perceptions of the presidential candidate. Uh, we've certainly had instances, and we can go into these examples if you like, about uh, where a presidential candidate has made a choice that you know, pretty clearly seemed to be uh, uh, motivated by politics. Um, it, it's hard to believe that this candidate was looking at the field of potential running mates and said, here's the person most qualified. 
And I think voters read into that, that, well, if you're going to make this first presidential decision uh, based on politics, uh, what else are you going to do to try to boost your approval ratings or get reelected, as opposed to someone who you know, makes a really responsible cho- choice, shows good leadership, good judgment? Um, that's a, a, a signal to voters that uh, when in office, this is also how the potential president is going to make decisions, uh, as opposed to doing it for you know, personal reasons, putting national interest over personal interest. You know, and, and that's something that we've seen play out now uh, when you see a lot of like pro Elizabeth Warren chatter for Biden's pick to be he's thinking about February and not November. That would seem to be signaling toward that position. But I do want to ask about these other sides, uh, the most political kind of picks. A few come to my mind, but I'm curious your guys's perspective. Who would be the most uh, uh, I'm trying to win in November and I'm going to maximize my opportunity to do so by selecting this person as my running mate. Well, I think the most recent example probably would have been Sarah Palin. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence out there that the McCain campaign uh, was really fearful about their chances in November, and they needed to shake things up. And obviously, they needed a quote-unquote game changer uh, to come on board and and help uh, change momentum. And because of that, they went through a rush vetting process, and I I think a lot of the campaign staffers realized that uh, if they had the chance to do things over again differently, they they would have. Uh, It wasn't the type of vice presidential candidacy uh, that the McCain campaign had hoped for. Obviously, uh, in in McCain's memoirs, he even noted that his first choice would to uh, be inviting Joe Lieberman on the ticket, yeah. but that certainly wasn't going to fly either, uh, given given the dynamics uh, within the Republican Party at the time. And uh, of course, we all know about the SNL uh, sketches, the gaffes, so on and so forth. Uh, and there is some research out there, even independent of our uh, book, that suggests that Sarah Palin actually cost votes uh, for McCain over time just because of her unpopularity. And um, in our research confirms that uh, if you disliked Sarah Palin or didn't think that she was ready to be um, vice president or perhaps later serve as president, that called into question John McCain's judgment. Uh, He appeared to be too old, perhaps, to be president of the United States, and it affected a host of other characteristics uh, about McCain in the eyes of voters. Uh, So in in recent memory, that's that's probably the most consequential one. Yeah, Palin said— Could I throw an example for for bipartisanship? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Palin's the easy example, uh, and I think the most significant one, really. Um, but how about John Edwards in 2004, who actually got a lot closer to being vice president? Uh, John Kerry's a lot closer to winning. This, this guy actually had less political experience than uh, Sarah Palin. Um, he was a first, first-term first senator. is the only office he'd ever been elected to. And it's pretty clear when you uh, look back on the uh, evidence, including from Kerry's memoir and, and from uh, other advisors, that this was a politically motivated pick. Um, Edwards was someone who, you know, uh, had done well in the primaries, kind of finished second to, to Kerry. Um, you know, young guy, nice head of hair, all this kind of stuff. Hard to see how he was the most qualified person to be the running mate. And uh, indications are from Kerry and, and others that a lot of it was based on geography. He thought uh, Edwards would perhaps deliver North Carolina. Uh, and in fact, the Kerry campaign ran its first ads and, and uh, did its first campaign visits uh, to North Carolina immediately after choosing Edwards. And, uh, you know, there's good indication that if, in fact, John Edwards had become vice president, that he would not have been a good governing partner for John Kerry, aside from the the personal scandals, um, (laughs) even from Kerry's from Kerry's account. um, 
Edwards, uh, he did not trust Edwards by the end of the campaign. And he really, you know, it's, it's pretty clear, about as clear as he's going to be, that he regretted that pick. So that was also one motivated by politics that I don't think would have turned out well if we had a President Kerry and a Vice President Edwards. Yeah, it does bear mentioning that uh, uh, for whatever you can say about Sarah Palin, reputationally, she has aged better than John Edwards. So uh, that yeah. is that is something uh, pretty much written in stone. Uh, let, let me ask you guys something about John Edwards, though, because he is an example of what becomes a media narrative. And I think a lot of, you know, in, in a bygone era when most average Americans only tuned in at the earliest to the primaries and then eventually in larger numbers for the general. Obviously, we have a much larger election-focused uh, mainstream audience these days. But back in those days, it it, it seemed like the media narrative and even uh, uh, voters within each party would push for a unity ticket. And, and usually that unity ticket was based on the narratives that were created from the primaries. So somebody is the, is the number one candidate. They get... The, the 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 top spot but you want to know what you should really take this other person who was close we saw it with you know bernie and hillary for folks who wanted to bridge that gap it seems like those people are very often the uh pick for for some uh do you guys in your research see that that is a prudent decision or is that kind of more of a trap like it would have been or like it was with edwards Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so you have to think about what party rivalries come down to, uh, rivalries for the nomination. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for it, but often they're ideological divides between different factions of the party, um, which can be hard to define. But, you know, usually we refer to these as moderate uh, slash establishment wings versus, you know, either more conservative or more progressive um, faction of the party. And that's that's the case with uh, Clinton and Sanders or, or, or Biden and Sanders, uh, for that matter. So really, um, you know, given the, the, the influence of partisanship, which is just incredibly powerful, how much it brings people around uh, by, by and large, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily about convincing uh, people on the losing faction that they need to vote for uh, the party. Uh, but there is some value in reassuring them that any ideological difference, differences are being duly recognized by the winner. Uh, let me put it as a, as a counterfactual um, when the presidential candidate uh, really does have a clear competitor, and that's not always the case. I mean, you know, Trump, I don't think had probably Ted Cruz was the strongest in 2016, but, you know, it wasn't like a really clear kind of Clinton Obama or Clinton Sanders type of dichotomy. Um, it, 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 um, when, uh, when they have to uh, uh, pick someone, um, or excuse me, when they're, when they're really challenged directly uh, in, in the race, um, and, and they uh, choose someone who, instead of coming from the losing faction, the, the one who, who might be bitter about how the campaign turned out, uh, the, the winning candidate chooses someone from their own faction. I think what that says, and, and you might be able to make this argument, this is not the end of the story, but it's one commentary on Clinton's uh, selection of Keynes, which, which actually I think was a pretty yeah. good selection uh, altogether. All but here's one you know, kind of negative of it. Um, I think some Sanders folks and – you know, maybe you can't blame him. I don't know. Um, I think, think some Sanders folks said, you know, if she's taking us seriously, if she thinks she needs us to be successful in order to be successful in the election and successful as president, you know, she'll kind of throw us a bone here. She'll pick someone from at least our general direction. You know, she'll pick Elizabeth Warren, maybe Sherrod Brown, maybe, you know, someone kind of to the left of her, not Bernie Sanders, but but to that side of things. Um, when she chose someone in a, as a, a centrist in Tim Kaine, I think it showed her 
her, her read on the strategy of the election and even her presidency, uh, which was that she felt like she had to go after the middle more than go after the left. She thought the left would come around to her um, because, you know, the alternative is Donald Trump, basically. Uh, and, and, and so, again, that's not the whole story, but I think that is one, one way when it comes to part, party factions that, uh, you know, ideology plays into it. And um, the, the risk is if you don't show any signal that you're taking the other side seriously, if, if you even confirm for them that, that you know, you're, you're taking them for granted, at least in their eyes, uh, that could be harmful to a campaign. So th- th- there's, yeah, that, that it's not necessarily even the fame or the name recognition, because that, that's really where, where I often look at it is, is it's just, you know, usually politics are kind of a, a, a tourism industry for America. We come and look at it every four years. Uh, and so it's like, oh, wait, I like this guy and uh, this guy won. I would like these two together. That would make me happy. I often <laughs> think that that's kind of it's almost as simple as that. Certainly for partisans that pay very, very close attention to it. You're going to have to address their issues, but uh, uh, certainly in in name recognition, uh, you know the 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 smart idea now would be like Biden and Bernie, despite the fact that that doesn't make sense for a bunch of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, all right, so let's let's talk about home state because that's something else that comes up a lot uh, in our modern context. Obviously, Gretchen Whitmer is on the short list. Michigan is a state that was a surprise Trump victory in 2016, and so now it has become the fixation of the Democratic Party uh, for 2020. Is there any kind of data to back up the idea that when you pick the vice president from the key battleground state, you can deliver that battleground state? So there's been about 40 years of research on this subject, and the vast majority of studies, and ours included, show that there's no on average, home state uh, effect. Uh, What we do find in our first book is a conditional effect, and it only comes from smaller states whenever a candidate there has a significant amount of political experience. The idea being there's probably more of a state identity. Uh, Someone might have had the opportunity to meet that elected official. There's going to be, you know, closer ties. You're going to be able to form those friends and neighbors types of connections. Um, But for the most part, we we don't see that across the board. And uh, even if there is a home state effect, you have to consider what does that mean overall in the electoral college. So, you know, someone say like Joe Biden, for example, absolutely a political institution in the state of Delaware. Well, Delaware's always been a blue state uh, in recent memory. So even if he did have you know, an advantage there, it didn't really matter in terms of the uh, outcome of the election. Now, I should note that there is a, a line of scholarship uh, that was recently produced uh, by Hirsik and Peterson, where they uh, use some different research methods and arrive at a different conclusion than what we do. Uh, we just have some uh, disagreements uh, with, with the methodology and whatnot, but uh, we respectfully, you know, just disagree with, with those outcomes. Um, but it's, it's important to note, though, that that's just one consideration uh, whenever a voter goes to the polls. And what we try to do is whenever we examine this issue, we're also controlling for a host of control variables, the things that would otherwise predict uh, political behavior, vote choice. So what we find is once you dig down and, and get individual level data, really, you know, if you can account for someone's partisanship, their ideology, their socioeconomic status, things like that, we're just not seeing that type of home state effect. And if you think about it, a voter would have to prioritize 
their connection to their home state or that candidate, despite all the other things that would otherwise uh, motivate voter behavior. Uh, so oftentimes it's it's the run of the mill things like partisanship that are, that's going to be driving voter behavior uh, and not necessarily an attachment to, um, you know, a vice presidential candidate. And even whenever we dig in deeper and try to discern, okay, what's the vice president's effect versus the presidential candidate's effect, evaluations of the presidential candidate are at least three to four times more powerful than that of the vice presidential candidates. So at the end of the day, it's really the presidential candidates that are in the driver's seat here. Uh, and it's very rare that we do find that uh, a vice presidential candidate could deliver a home state advantage. We're not saying that it's impossible or that never happens. It's just unlikely. And given that, presidential candidates probably ought to consider other things other than the electoral advantage of winning a home state, because if that's unlikely to occur, don't prioritize it. Look at other things. Are they going to be a good governing partner? Are they going to give you sage advice? Those types of things are going to be probably more salient uh, in making a decision as to who your running mate ought to be. All right. If I can just ask, uh, you know, to, to drill down a touch deeper on on the state question, is there any difference? Uh, you, you pointed out age and experience and, and relationships within that state is certainly something that does affect it. But is there any difference between a, a state actor, let's say a governor, versus a representative in D.C., like a senator or a representative? Does uh, one uh, meld better than, than the other, one perform better in terms of delivering a state or any kind of advantage there? Uh, what, what we did in our uh, initial analysis, we looked at statewide uh, representation because that's whenever you're going to be able to you know, appeal to most voters. If, if you're a, a congressman, a, a representative in the House of Representatives from a very specific district, um, you know, you're, you're going to have uh, a smaller defined constituency. Uh, in our analysis, we tried to look at those office holders who uh, had statewide connections, which could include um, you know, someone like Dick Cheney. He was an at-large representative. Uh, from Wyoming. So his his entire state essentially was his constituency. And there's some other studies that do suggest that the statewide representation matters more uh, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, that you're, you're able to make these types of connections with voters. But again, I, I really want to stress, this is not something that happens systematically across all states. It, it's not like if you pick Kamala Harris, for example, you're going to get a boost in California. Or if you pick Gretchen Whitmer, you're going to get a boost in Michigan. Uh, when we do find this happening, again, it tends to be in the smaller states uh, that do have uh, this, this more um, – homogeneous voter base or a strong sense of identity, what it means to come from that type of state, rather than just something that you'd find in any state in the union. Just want to pick up on a couple of points there. Think of, of the reasons why someone would vote differently because of the running mate. Okay. This is not the president who holds, you know, most of the power in the presidential administration. It, it's it's going to be the vice president who is powerful through, you know, informal powers designated by choice by any given president. It's not, constitutional powers in most cases. So you have to ask, if someone's going to vote differently because of their running mate, what do they expect? You know, what, what's their motivation? What's their incentive? Um, is it going to be actual material interest? They think their life is going to be better off because this fellow, you know, let's say it's a voter from Florida and Val Demings gets, gets the nomination. They think that their life in Florida is going to be better. Um, she's going to deliver for, for Florida. I doubt people's votes are coming down to those really marginal decisions. Maybe it's going to be state pride then or, or some kind of psychological uh, affiliation to a fellow Floridian. Um, you know, maybe you'd have those attachments more if you come from her district, but if you come from, say, Miami, a different district, 
uh, are you going to have that that feeling of psychological loyalty to the point where you'd vote differently? I would have not voted or I would have voted for Donald Trump, and now I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because Val Demings is on the ticket and she's a fellow Floridian. I think that's pretty unlikely people would make those decisions, and we really need to keep that psychology in mind uh, when we project about how people are going to vote differently because of the running mate, whether that's because of geography or some other factor. You know, most of the time when I hear people playing the deep stakes game and don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I enjoy it too. <laughs> but, but a lot of times when, when people play it with that parlor game type mentality, notice the people who are saying it and ask yourself, how often are those people up in the air about how they're going to vote? It's almost always the people who already know how they're going to vote. You know, you, you're, you're mentioning um, the, the, the tourism uh, uh, kind of mindset or mentality. Um, you could even think of this as a, as a, a car dealer uh, type of mentality. How do I get you, uh, you know, in the, on, this, on this ticket, right? What do I have to do to get you on this ticket? So, you know, it, it, it's not like I'm trying to make up my mind and, wow, if, you know, Joe Biden picked this person, uh, I'd jump on board. It's, I've already made up my mind, and really what I'm trying to do by playing this deep stakes game is figure out how can we game this? How can we, you know, manipulate voters into joining my side? Um, and, and, you know, if you can't imagine uh, your vote being changed, switching from Trump to Biden or to non-voting or whatever the combination is, if you can't imagine yourself changing your vote because of the addition of a running mate from X state or X group, then why would you expect other people to do it unless your estimation of other people is that their decisions are really based on flimsy reasons and they can be easily changed if some brilliant strategist like me just comes around, comes along uh, with the with the right uh, uh, campaign strategy. All right, let, let's take a look at another fixation point uh, for the Veep stakes, and that is the attack dog. The idea that a vice president can say the things that maybe the more regal president wouldn't say. Now, obviously, that's kind of been flipped on its head in a post-Trump era where Mike Pence is is much more a reserved personality publicly than than President Trump is. However, that still is something that is brought up. Is there any worth in terms of the media, uh, earned media potential of a vice president to say the thing that energizes the base or energizes voters versus somebody who's a little bit more reserved and, and obviously in a very clear second-in-command position? So that's a great question, and our, our research doesn't speak uh, specifically to that, but I, I think there is a distinction between the earned media and whether that actually translates into votes, and some other scholars have found that um, – you know, take – Take the vice presidential debates, for example, um, and, and that is an opportunity for you know both candidates to basically defend their ticket and attack the opposing ticket. So you, you do see that attack dog uh, type of approach within those debates, and obviously it happens on the campaign trail too. Um, but what we found, you know, in, in the literature, we as political scientists, is you know that that has a pretty short-term effect. It, it doesn't really uh, last beyond uh, a few days normally in terms of um, you know changing voters' mentalities uh, about the candidates. It's probably going to result in some earned media. Uh, the media is going to pick it up. But the question is, is that enough to change the minds of, of voters? It's a data point. It's, it's going to affect voters at some level, but then other political events are going to happen. The campaign's going to continue to unfold. I mean, there are many more presidential debates than what there are vice presidential debates. So the odds of something like that happening um, where it is a decisive 
reason why someone would vote for presidential candidate A versus presidential candidate B. Again, it's pretty unlikely, all things considered. Yeah, you know, it it, it seems like it almost, you know, we have we have a more prescient example of Sarah Palin not acquitting herself well uh, in in terms of media and really doing damage to that ticket than we do mm-hmm. an example of somebody like, oh, I wasn't going to vote for this person. But, man, these points that this vice president is making, uh, I'm, I'm really, yeah. I'm really on their side. Yeah, I think there's a point to be made that it's much easier to do damage than what there is uh, the ability to help out a ticket. Uh, certainly, Sarah Palin falls into that category. Uh, uh, Eagleton in 72 uh, falls into that category, too, and that was that was a, another botched vetting process uh, where it was not made apparent that Eagleton uh, was suffering from some mental health issues, was receiving electroshock treatment, and certainly that just played into the narrative of the campaign, and, and what does that mean, uh, having a vice president who's you know potentially mentally unstable that that led to his ouster from the ticket and Sergeant Shriver stepping on board instead uh, at a later point. So for those types of things, it, it again will reflect very poorly on the campaign. I think more so than anything, it reflects poorly on the judgment of the presidential candidate and his team or her team uh, when selecting that running mate. So if, if they're making a flawed decision, about who is going to be their successor. If, if they die in office, they resign, they have health issues, you name it. If they make a flawed decision there about who is next in line to be president, what does that say about the presidential candidate's judgment across a whole variety of issues? Um, and that's that's where I think it matters the most. Actually, you brought up something really interesting. Uh, when does our modern Veep Stakes era start? Because certainly in a world where conventions mattered and getting you know the ballot getting enough votes on a ballot was something that was important before our modern primary system the idea of the vice president was far more all right let's let's put this thing together so we can get a ballot across the finish line where now it is far more of a job interview and you are getting hired uh you know with the the campaign fully knowing that they're going to get exactly who they want in this position when does that start Chris, you want to do the that modern one? era? Yeah, uh, the modern era of vice presidential election starts with Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale in 1976. Now, there's a reason for this. Up to 1968, uh, presidential nominations are decided at the convention. So there's really no period beforehand. I mean, I guess some presumptuous uh, potential presidential candidate could do a vetting process, but they don't know if they're actually going to get the nomination. 1968 still decided the convention. Of course, in reaction to the way that process went, we get some reforms. Um, McGovern Fraser Commission reforms in the Democratic Party, which eventually, you know, applied basically to the Republican Party, uh, essentially by 1972, um, where we switched more to a, to a model the parties did, where nominations were decided basically through primaries, and except for odd circumstances, we would know going to the convention who the presidential nominee was going to be. Now, d- despite this, in, in 1972, McGovern actually does this rushed vetting process, extremely rushed. Um, as Kyle was alluding to, and we get more into that in the book. Um, <clears throat> by 1976, having seen, you know, so not only do we have this change in, in uh, circumstances where Jimmy Carter knew well in advance of the Democratic convention that year that he was going to be the presidential nominee, he also had this example of McGovern really botching his pick and it hurting 
his campaign, perceptions of him as a candidate. So Carter decides to do things differently, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And also Walter Mondale for really, you know, even contributing further to that process. I should mention uh, Joel Goldstein's a, a law professor uh, who, who's really an expert on, on, on many of these topics. Uh, he has a great book, The White House Vice Presidency, that really gets into excellent detail on this. I'd recommend it. Um, and, you know, what he describes there is essentially this process where, where they said uh, Carter's campaign said, let's have this really deliberative period leading up to the convention where we look into the background of the candidates. We find all the skeletons in the closet. We have interviews with them. We do personal uh, interviews, maybe to judge chemistry and, and, and things like that. Uh, that worked out so well for Carter and also uh, the agreement that he came to with Mondale that Mondale would serve an enhanced role in the White House uh, actually having a White House office, having access to all presidential level uh, meetings, uh, regular one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with the president, and, and, and so on. Um, that worked out so well. It strengthened Carter's administration that subsequent presidential candidates have followed a similar uh, vetting process, and subsequent presidents have empowered their vice presidents for the most part as well. All right, one last question. Uh, we speculated on the podcast a couple uh, episodes ago that uh, if Val Demings was going to be brought on, it would likely be because police reform, specifically in the wake of everything that's happened, would be something that the Biden campaign would want to make a priority of. And, and now, as a former police chief, she could be the voice to, I'm going to reform this because I know how the system works. Issue vice presidents. Does that move the needle? Because on one hand, it is a first step of what you, uh, you know, how, uh, how serious you might think a candidate would take something if they were to win the White House. But on the other hand, you know, for, for Val Demings specifically, she's fairly new to Congress and, and really has not built up the kind of relationships that, let's say, a Joe Biden or even a Dick Cheney had in D.C. So I think that one of the ways that we can think about this, too, is in terms of, you know, filling in the gaps for uh, presidential candidates' uh, credentials at some level. Uh, so, it, you know, Im implied here is that, you know, Joe Biden maybe isn't the best person to address this issue. So he needs a, a running mate who has that capability. And maybe that's Demings, maybe it's someone else. Uh, you know, that's that's a policy consideration for the campaign uh, to, to consider. But what we do see is, you know, just generally speaking, Presidential candidates tend to select running mates uh, that bring something to the ticket in terms of experience that maybe the presidential candidate lacks. So, and we've seen this with the recent uh, vice presidents. I mean, obviously, uh, Mike Pence being selected by Donald Trump, someone who had uh, a lot of governing experience at the federal and state level, can contribute there. Um, Dick Cheney, obviously, having uh, a lot of uh, defense experience, foreign policy experience, and the same thing could be said for Joe Biden uh, when he was selected by Barack Obama, filling in the gaps. And I think that that's something that our research does bear out, that voters do tend to notice whenever someone is selected to provide some balance, not necessarily balance for balance's sake, like having a, a candidate from the north and south, the east and west, or something along those lines, uh, but really someone who adds policy experience in a certain area uh, that will enhance the operations of a potential White House administration. Uh, now, 
whether this is going to matter for you know this very specific issue, uh, that remains to be seen. But generally in the past, it has been more about a broader set of policy issues rather than one single thing like police brutality or law enforcement reform. So it's, it's kind of difficult to project what that would mean if Demings was selected. Uh, she would probably uh, be able to speak very passionately and incredibly uh, about that issue. But then there's also the question of what else uh, could she bring to a potential Biden administration? And, and that's something that would have to be discussed on the campaign trail. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly argue that Pence, well, you know, that was a, a move to shore up white evangelicals who were maybe a little uh, leery at, at President Trump. And that certainly at least paid off for his election in 2016. Uh, uh, not not so fast, actually. Okay. Uh, oh. we, we get into that. <laughs> Never um, mind. And uh, yeah, so uh, we, we have some great panel data on this. Uh, so voters who were uh, surveyed repeatedly over time before and after uh, vice presidential selection, and uh, we don't see that type of effect among evangelicals uh, through election day. Uh, oftentimes, whenever we do see some sort of this type of effect where you're appealing to a demographic group, and uh, we get into this also with the 2012 election, uh, you might see a brief spike uh, in support maybe the month after the mm -hmm. selection is made. Um, and, and we even see this for Paul Ryan, for example, in 2012 among Midwestern voters, where you know there's a statistically discernible effect, but then in future months, it's not there anymore. It's, it's, I tend to think of it like a post-convention bump. You, know, you have okay. this really high profile rollout of a running mate. There's a lot of positive media attention if the campaign does their job correctly. And certainly with Mike Pence, that was also one of the things that you know, helped to sell Donald Trump was, his, uh, was Pence's connections to the evangelical community. But we just don't have ev any evidence in the statistical models that that persisted. The, the one time where we can show that there was a statistical relationship between a, a block of voters and increased support for a candidate was actually, uh, again, Paul Ryan in 2012 among conservatives. So after Ryan's selection, the support among conservative voters maintained all the way through Election Day. It increased and held steady uh, through the election. We don't see that for many other candidates, like we, even for Tim Kaine. We don't see this among Southerners. We don't see this among Catholic voters. Um, there was some speculation, obviously, that Tim Kaine could appeal to the Latino and Hispanic community just because he spoke Spanish. Obviously, that's <laughs> A flawed assumption there, too, but uh, we, we see no evidence of that changing the mentality of voters over time. So, again, it's, it's pretty rare, but whenever you take these individual snapshots in time, maybe there is a brief spike in support, but then there's the bigger question. Will it sustain? Campaigns happen. Crises happen. All these other things occur over months and that's going to change the perception of voters. And what we find is, yeah, that, that largely diminishes the influence of vice presidential candidates. It, yeah, if you have time, just, just one last comment. Yeah, please you know, go ahead. I, I think just to bring this all together, I think this ties in with the broader political science literature, uh, which shows that, you know, um, there, there tend to be a set of fundamentals that influence how people vote, uh, like party or, or how you think of the economy um, or, or what you think about the incumbent president. And it's not like nothing else matters. Certainly it can, but it's at the margins, and it usually takes a pretty dramatic intervention. Uh, so a lot of the uh, kind of gaming out of, of, well, like, you know, maybe marginally pick up something here, marginally pick up something there. You know, I think that tends to be overstated. Um, remember that fundamentally this is a choice between presidential candidates. 
Um, we are not saying that the running mate doesn't matter, but we are saying that the running mate primarily matters by shaping how you think of the presidential candidate. Um, so bringing on a group of voters because they're going to say, wow, hey, I, I still can't stand Donald Trump or Joe Biden, but I would love to have you know, Mike Pence or I'd love to have uh, you know, wh whoever it is, Gretchen Whitmer, Val Demings or, or someone else at, as, as the vice president of the United States. I don't think a lot of people make that calculation. What you can do where they're valuable is in making them say, okay, when you look at Joe Biden, you were looking at him this way. Maybe he's not quite what you thought. Maybe he's a little more left by choosing Elizabeth Warren. Or if he thinks his strength is with moderates, maybe he is, you know, firmly in the center if that's what you like. However they judge out, they gave out that, that strategy. Um, so I, I think that's what the campaign should keep in mind is, is you know, not to kind of chase after uh, what are often these, these kind of imagined electoral benefits don't really show up in the data, even when they're very plausible stories, uh, honestly. Um, it, it's better to try to reassure people of your strengths and also reassure, uh, reassure them about your weaknesses so that they have a better idea that you are the right person to be president, not about convincing them who to make the vice president. That is a very, very, very good point. And I hope everybody uh, that uh, is, is thinking about these decisions, they think about this data. And now you can think about it as well. Thanks to our guest, Kyle Kopko. Uh, he is an assist, uh, associate professor at political of political science and an associate dean at Elizabethtown College in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. You can file him, uh, find him on Twitter at Kyle Kopko. That is a K and Kyle and a K and Kopko. And of course, uh, Christopher Devine, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. You can find him on Twitter at Prof Devine and go get their book. Do running mates matter? The influence of vice presidential candidates in presidential elections. Thank you so much, guys, for taking uh, time out of your day to be on the show. Thank you very much. It was a so lot of pleasure. Fun. Yeah. Have a happy Veep Steak season. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to wrap it up for us today. I would like to thank our Titanic $10 tier, middle-aged Mike Chad, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, Troublefilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy Montana, D. Laser, Captain Bunzo, Frozen Summer, Emily, Wolf Glen 99, Berkeley Steven, The Gen, NH, Blumkin, Robert, Eoxy, DL, Andrew, Archie, Brad, Brian, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, Dustin, I Pooped My Pants, Jay Melius, Jonathan Scott, Lindsey uh, Logan, uh, MacBook Pro, Nick, Miranda, Nomadic, Olin, and Angela, Richard, Thor, and Zach. Going to join their ranks. Head on over. Take politics seriously.com. In fact, I am literally wrapping this up right now so I can go do another Twitch stream. Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Fridays, we do call in shows. So, probably listening to this, you're like, oh man, there might have been something I just heard in this particular podcast I would have liked to call in. Now you're going to be able to because you know it if you didn't know it before. Twitter's Justin R. Young as well. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more, man, they're talking about politics, but this is the only show that talks about
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>